Father, I am so grateful that you, that you know us, that you hear us, and that you are in our midst right now. Father, we know that there is no place that you are not with us, but there is something unique, something extraordinary, something beautiful about your people gathered together, your people in your name and for your sake gathered around your word in worship of you. So, Spirit, do what you do, what only you can do, and in us and through us, and in particular this morning through your word. And open our spiritual eyes to be able to discern the things that we can't without your help. And change us through your word. Change us from the inside out. Correct what is out of place. Encourage what is of you. And conform us into the image of Jesus that we would look more and more like him each day. Father, please speak this morning. I'll make your word memorable and not mine. We love you, we trust you, and it is in your name that we gather this morning. Amen. All right, Psalm 139. If you're still following with us in the reading the Bible throughout the year plan, this would have been your Monday of last week. And if you did read it last week, you may have a couple questions about this one because there is a bit of a record scratch moment halfway through this Psalm. Everything seems to be going great, then all of a sudden it takes a weirdly dark turn. So we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. One thing that I love about this psalm is uh, this psalm is functionally the, the obliteration of the myth of the compartmentalized life. Right? The reality that everything, everything in life is either sacred or profane. There is no neutral ground. There is nothing about our lives and about existence that just is what it is. And so we can fall easily into the misunderstanding that, that there is life and there is ministry, right? There is work and there is worship. There is church and there is family. And that all these separate compartments are designed to, to neatly stay in their place and that they should not be overlapping with one another, especially God, right? He definitely needs to stay in his place and not meddle with all of this stuff over here, right? Unless, of course... We need him. Then he needs to hop to it. Toot sweet. But for the most part, he needs to stay in his place and and just be available when I need him so I can go about my business. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament are quite clear that that is an illusion. The body, the spirit, our life, all these things are, are inseparably enmeshed with one another. In such a way that every desire, every thought, every act is either an act of worship of God or an act of worship of something or someone else. And the Bible lists such spectacularly mundane things as sitting, eating, drinking, and sleeping as opportunities to either worship God or practice idolatry. Robbie, sleeping? Are you serious? Oh yeah, you can sin while you're sleeping, people. That's awesome, right? And maybe you hear that and you go, oh my goodness, like that's just so overwhelming. Like no area is safe. Like I can even screw up when I'm sleeping. No, no, I would encourage you to, to flip that and look at it from the other direction and realize that even 
my sleeping is an opportunity to worship God to his delight and to my joy. I think that's actually kind of cool. So let's take a look and see what the Holy Spirit through David's poetic pen is wanting to communicate to us about how he, our life is a unified whole and, and why that's important and what ultimately that leads us to. Could use one extra arm. That'd be super helpful. So as we go through this, uh, I'll give you a little outline so you can more easily follow along. This is kind of two halves to this, and each half has three parts. So the first half in verses 1 through 16, we're going to see David exalting God for his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his creative providence, right? So the fact that he is everywhere, that he knows everything, and, and providence is essentially just a fancy word for he accomplishes exactly what he desires always, And the second half, verses 17 through 24, is going to be David's response to that. So it's David delighting in those things and worshiping God because of those things. Then David confessing his thoughts and his feelings. And then David's appeal to God to lovingly correct him. So an even more simplified roadmap that that David follows that we're going to go along is God knows you. God is with you. God made you. God's thoughts are to be most highly treasured. God listens to you, and God knowingly and lovingly corrects you. So here's what we got. We're going to start with verses 1 through 5, and the reality that God knows you. Here's what David says. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. And my lying down, you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. So David starts by laying out that God knows you. And, and typically, the two biggest reasons we tend to doubt this are, are either uh, defensiveness or discouragement. Right? So defensiveness leads me to say, you don't know me. And discouragement leads me to say, you don't even notice me. But David here is laying out, no, no, God not only notices you, he knows you, your thoughts, your actions, your words before you speak them, even the words that you didn't speak. That is the worst good news ever, right? Because to some of us, we hear that and we think, ooh, like God knows everything. Everything. Nothing escapes him. There is no thought, no matter how fleeting, no desire. Nothing escapes his knowledge, and, and the reality is David sees this as extraordinarily good news. Why? Because he says in verse 5, You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. So imagine a horrifying and, and sinful secret sin, right, that, that is suddenly exposed to the very person that you would least want 
to know about this. And their response is to just gently rest their hand on your shoulder and say, I know. I've always known. I was there. I'm still with you in this. And David responds to the knowledge that that is God's response to him by just breaking out into doxology. He just breaks out in worship. Right, just immediately, such now, this is too wonderful for me to even understand. It's so high, I cannot even attain it. He just worships at this knowledge that God knows everything about me, and he is still with me and for me. That is extraordinary. And then he goes on from there in verses 7 through 12. He goes on and says, Where shall I go from your spirit? And where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take on the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. David's not complaining here, church. He's delighting. He's not complaining saying, man, how am I ever supposed to get a break from you, God? Where can I go that you aren't there pestering me with something? No, he's saying it is not possible that I could do something or go somewhere where you are not right there closer to me than my own breath. You are always with me. Always, rather than wishing that we could take a break from God and his expectations, we, like David, should be overwhelmed with gratitude over the reality that there is no place, there is no circumstance, there is no relationship, there is no heartache, there is no victory, there is no failure, that he is not in the midst of guiding and holding you. Hallelujah! That deserves an amen. Like, that is a... That is a an unbelievable reality of who our God is. This God that we worship, he is not distant. He is not far off. Right now, he is closer to you than your front teeth. In the darkest of circumstances, either external or internal, whether the thing I fear most is out there or in here, he's with me. He is with you. There is no divide between the sacred and the secular. There is no separation between your life in Christ and any other aspect of your life. Jesus is not, the reality is we function as if this were true, but Jesus is not our parole officer who is going to leave us alone as long as we just keep making our weekly meeting, right? Just make sure you get your weekly check-in, don't break any of the big rules, and he'll pretty much leave you alone. No, he is like our breath. The Greek word for spirit and breath is the same word. Every aspect matters. If we were to only breathe once a week on Sunday morning, that ends badly for us, church. The reality is you are either breathing all of the time or you're breathing none of the time. The same is true as it relates to the spirit. 
It's not an additive that we can just access every now and again when he seems helpful to us. He is either integrated into our life or he is not. We are in Christ or we are not in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then that is our identity. That is our reality in every single aspect of our existence. Every aspect matters. And what I love about this poem is David mentions the extraordinary and the hilariously mundane. Right? If I take on the wings of morning and ascend into the heavens, and also if I sit down. Like he's, he's there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how ridiculous. It doesn't matter how extraordinary. It doesn't matter how mundane. Some of us, honestly, if we're honest, we fear that God does not or will not notice us unless we do something spectacular. Like we need to do something radical or God's not even going to take notice of our existence. And we need to be reminded that sometimes radical means getting up when you don't feel like it and getting your kids ready when you are still tired and going and faithfully working that job where you are underappreciated and then coming home and by the grace of God being willing to die to yourself enough to love your spouse to the glory of God at the end of the day. That's radical. And it's extraordinary worship of God. The psalm reminds us that even if your life does not look bold or spectacular or even interesting by your definition, God notices you, is fond of you, and is with you in the midst of all of that. And that that's more than enough. The gospel relates to and speaks to and bears weight on every single aspect of your life, no matter how spectacular or mundane, no matter how beautiful or devastating. The gospel relates to that. And I would challenge you this week, church, email or write on a comment card. You can find those at the giving boxes that are positioned over here in the grass. They're right on the side. Write on the comment card before you leave here or email us this week. A circumstance that you believe the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus does not relate to. Send it our way and we will respond. Some of you guys, maybe you're going to do that because you are really struggling with something and you do not understand how the gospel could possibly relate to this thing and you need help. We want to hear from you and we want to be able to help you in that. Some of you are going to fill something out just because you want to try to stump us. That's cool too. We want to hear it. And we will respond because we want to help in that. David goes on. In verse 13, you, God, made you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God made you. Why is that such a big deal? Well, that means that every aspect of who you are, your abilities and your weaknesses, your strengths and your frailties were all handcrafted with glorious purpose and are capable of reflecting the image of the God who sculpted you. 
The things that you love and the things that you hate about yourself are part of God's intentional and loving design. Now, we have to realize that when we allow those things to operate out of balance, when we allow ourselves to become enslaved to those tendencies, when, when, when we allow our, our wiring to become weaponized against other people, that is sin. Right? Our, the way God made us, our personalities, our tendencies are never justification for sin. However, when every one of them, every single one of them, strengths and weaknesses, and I would argue because I think scripture argues especially the weaknesses, when they are operating, operating the way that they were designed in perfect harmony with the song that our Heavenly Father is singing over his creation, it sounds beautiful. And it brings delight to our God and blessing to each other and the lost world. And it stirs our joy. Which is why David then responds in joy. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I love that I'm, I awake and I'm still with you. Like I shake myself out of this amazing dream and return to the mundane reality of this world and the dirt and the blood and the work and you're still here. You're not only in these dreams and in these spiritual experiences. You, I, I wake up from that and, and, and here you are. You're still here. You're still with me. David responds in the only appropriate way to understanding God's omniscience and omnipresence and creative sovereignty. He worships. He praises this extraordinary and incomparable God. That's what an accurate knowledge of God always leads to, by the way. A little bit of fear and a whole lot of worship and joy. Number five, God listens to you. So here's where, coming off the heels of this explosion of doxology, right? This like, this he can't help himself. He just starts worshiping in the middle of this as he's realizing who God is. All of a sudden, we go, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them as enemies. Wait, what? Yikes, Dave. What happened? Like, we're, we're just, we're cruising along, man. We're singing the worship song. Right? Oh, how he loves. He's a hurricane of love. I'm bending over in his grace and his mercy and love. Also, I hate my enemies with a complete and consuming hatred. What? Like, that feels out of place to you too, right? What, David? What's going on, buddy? God is listening to him, right? And what I mean by God listens to you, I do not mean God does whatever you say. What I mean is... Literally, he listens to you. He hears you. 
He hears our confessions and he actually cares about what it is that we're saying. Now, taken out of context, these three verses are, are an extraordinary dangerous three verses and have been used along with a few others to justify some of the most horrifying and Christless events in church history. So when we approach something like this and we go, huh, that seems peculiar, we should take a step back and go, okay, what, should, what lens should we look at this through? And so at least three of the things that I think are important to realize. Number one, some of the poetry in the Psalms are honest expressions of what the author is thinking and feeling, but not necessarily affirmed by God. Okay, so when David poetically says, God, why have you forsaken me? That is a true and honest expression of what David is feeling in that moment, but not a statement of fact that God has literally abandoned him. Right, so we need to understand the difference there of what is, what is true in the sense that that is really what the author is feeling and true in the sense of that's actually a reflection of God's character and a description of what he is doing. Okay, so we want to keep that in mind. Number two, I think it's worth pointing out what he's angry about and who he's not angry at. He's not angry at people who have wronged him, but people who have wronged God. He's not angry at people who hate him, but people who hate God. He's not angry at people who disagree with him theologically or methodologically or politically, but those who rise up in anger against God. He is taking it personally that people hate the one that he loves above all others. And then number three, within the context of this poem as a whole, these three verses read very differently than if you were to just grab these three verses, yank them out of this context, and just use them. And even more differently when you, when you zoom out into the broader context of Scripture as a whole. So it's essential for us to understand what is and is not happening in passages like this. But don't freak out. Oftentimes it's easier than you think to be able to do that. So if we just zoom out... So I'm going to read the last couple of verses in it, and then we're going to zoom out and just summarize what we read. Okay, so he goes on after this in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what we've seen happen in this poem, is you know everything, God. You are everywhere. You are always with me and within me. You made me exactly who I am. This is what I am feeling and thinking. Please reveal in me if anything that I am thinking or feeling grieves you. Do you see what's happening? It's actually not terribly complicated. David doesn't know if what he just said is okay. So he's asking God, I need you to either affirm this or I need you to correct this if this grieves your heart. Because God lovingly and knowingly corrects us. That's number six. David himself is not sure if he should be thinking this. He ends after describing his feelings by asking the father to search him and determine if those feelings are wrong. He asks the God who he knows, knows him better than anyone, is always with him, is always there, who made him to be who he is. Is this honoring to you or does this grieve you? 
This is what my heart feels, but I want you to lead me, not my heart. There's so much wisdom in this church because our heart is a liar. Scripture says you and I don't even understand our own heart, let alone anybody else's. So saying my heart led me to do this, I just went with my gut, that is not the same thing as saying Jesus led me to do this. In fact, my heart and my gut, more often than not, lead me to do the exact opposite of what Jesus would ever want for me or his kingdom. The fact that it feels right is actually meaningless because multiple times scripture says, oh yeah, there's all kinds of ways that feel right to you and they lead to death. That's why you need God, the word, the spirit, the word, and others to constantly be correcting you. We need constant course correction because my heart is constantly lying to me. That feeling in my heart might just be because I got what I wanted or because I'm not getting what I want. Or because I ate the third cupcake. Or I probably should have gotten my Thai food mild spice. Or I haven't had my cup of coffee. It is not the Holy Spirit of the living God of the universe guiding and correcting me. That's because I'm hangry. And when we confuse being hangry with righteousness, that's a serious problem. When I confuse, this is what I want. This is my desire. Therefore, that must be God who's telling me to do that. That leads us to horrifying places, church. Our heart deceives. And scripture says that I don't even understand my own heart. If we are wise, we will start with the fundamental biblical reality that you don't know yourself better than anybody else does. We have convinced ourselves that I know me better than anyone. No, you don't. It is a delusion that we buy into. Your and my self-perception is Skewed, self-denial, self-deception, self-justification are permanent residents in our flesh that must be combated daily. So why scripture is so clear. I mean, you've got to be confessing. You've got to be allowing other people to speak into you and hold you accountable. You have to because you on your own are incapable. And the really annoying part of this fact, at least I find it annoying, is that when you try to argue against it, you prove you're doing the thing. Right? Because what's my defense to this? Well, that might be true about you, but not me. I know myself very well. You're literally doing the thing. That's self-denial. Right? Saying you don't do the thing is doing the thing. How annoying is that? We don't always know our own motivations. Come on. We are so good at justifying and making excuses that we, we honestly believe that we screamed at that person and called them names because of what they did. And it has nothing to do with the mountain of undealt with anger and fear and insecurity and pain that is in my own heart that was just stirred up by that thing that you did. We actually believe that we're trying to control that person for their protection and their good. And it has nothing to do with me actually trying to protect myself from hurt or pain or regret, or loss, or feeling of insignificance, or lack of respect. We actually believe 
that when this is within our choice, that we're choosing to work those kind of hours or making those kind of compromises in order to provide for our family. And not because I'm actually trying to prove my own worth and my, find my identity in what I accomplish or have enough money to buy all the toys that I think are going to make me happy. And like David, we actually believe that we hate that person that God loves and made in his image and sent Jesus in order to redeem because I love God so much. I believe that. That's why I so desperately need the word and the Holy Spirit and you to love me enough to go, nope. There's someone who knows you way better than you do, church. The heart is deceitful above all things. We can fear all the stuff that is out there. We can fear them. We can fear whatever else is out there. But scripture says your greatest and most deadly enemy is right here. It is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Thankfully, he immediately answers that question. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is why we have to listen to and submit ourselves to scripture and to others. This is why we must learn how to differentiate between the voice of the spirit and our own inner monologue. Because our own inner monologue is going to agree with us pretty much all the time. My inner monologue thinks I'm a genius. The Holy Spirit needs to constantly correct me and say, those aren't actually, that's not really your motivation. That's not actually, that thing that you think is this is not being received that way. And then having people who love me enough to come alongside me and say, that thing that you think is that is not that. Here David wisely acknowledges, this is what I feel, but I don't trust my feelings. I need you to guide me. I need you to lead me. I need you to protect me from myself. In church, I just I have to ask, I've been asking myself this all week. We have to ask ourselves, how often do we ask Jesus to test our motives? How often do you ask the Holy Spirit Change my mind about this thing. And how often are you ready to listen and respond when he does? God can correct and must correct because he knows you. He is with you. He made you. He knit you together to be precisely who and how he wants you to be. And he often uses others to help lead and guide in that. Zooming out to see scripture as a whole, we see how God uses others to answer David. But David's own son, in response to this, is it okay for me to hate my enemies with a complete and all-consuming hatred, God? His own son writes, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink. Which Paul then quotes in Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. 
which actually is a truth that points back to the law, all the way back to Exodus, where it says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey, the one who hates you, lying down under his burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Again, you shall sacrificially serve the one that you hate and hates you until you love them and until they love God. And then Jesus puts a nice bow on it, pretty much closes the debate with, you have heard it said in Matthew chapter 5, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He says, that's how the sons of the father operate. That's the family rule. We love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? The nice thing that Jesus done, does for us in that is there's pretty much no way to take that out of context. It's about as plain as it gets. He leaves you with, you either believe Jesus is right or Jesus is wrong. And he does not understand the best way to handle enemies in the kingdom of God. So when we zoom out, we see that God lovingly responds. He not only hears David, but for our benefit, he responds in a way that says, okay, when you see this, understand I've, I've answered this. I love this poem. I love that we see David acknowledging that God knows him better than he could ever possibly know himself. Confessing how he feels about something that he feels passionately and even believes he's doing it in God's name and asks God to correct his thoughts, which then we get to see he does. And the even more amazing thing to me in that church is this is not just the privilege of giant killing kings. This is ours as well as sons and daughters of God. As members of his kingdom, this is our privilege as well to have this kind of intimacy, this kind of conversation with him, that he would love us this specifically and intimately. We need to truly know how badly we need this. And we need to trust and embrace and celebrate the incredible reality that God knows you. God is with you always. That God made you to be exactly who he wanted you to be. That God's thoughts are to be treasured above all thoughts. That God listens to you. He hears your questions and your confessions. And then he responds by knowingly and lovingly correcting us. I think that's amazing. He does so through his spirit, through his word, and through his people. Let's embrace the God who knows us better than we could possibly know ourselves. Let's trust the God who is always with us to lead and guide and redirect us. Let's follow the God who searches us and corrects us and encourages us. And let's do that together as his family on his mission. His mission to 
to be ferociously committed and fully immersed followers of Jesus who help others to become and live as ferociously committed and fully immersed followers of Jesus and worship this extraordinary heavenly father who loves you and I right where we are but loves us far too much to leave us right where we are. Father, I, I understand David's response of this, this such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. You are incomprehensibly huge. You are incomprehensibly powerful. You are incomprehensibly good. For those of us who need the encouragement of being reminded that you are with us, you are for us, you know aspects about ourselves, our hearts, that we, that in your mercy you won't allow us to know yet because it would crush us. And you are with us, loving us in that. God, I am so grateful to know that you guide us, you meet us in the midst of our victories and our failures, and you are guiding us in both of those things. Thank you. Thank you. Don't allow us to leave this place to get in our cars and drive out and instantly feel as though we have left you in this field. To know every breath that we feel that is a reminder of the closeness of your spirit with us and in us and pointing us to our Jesus, the only name in heaven and on earth by which we can be saved. We love you. We need you. It's in your precious name that we pray.